Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody and welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Aaron and today we're here with a very special guest, Eddie O'Day. So many mountain bikers aspire to spending a night or two out on the trail with nothing but the items they can carry on their bikes. But few of us can imagine bikepacking for weeks at a time, let alone doing that at a race pace day and night. Eddie O'Day is a professional endurance mountain bike racer and holds course records in the Stagecoach 400, the Trans North Georgia, and the Hurricane 300 Ultra Endurance Mountain Bike Races. This year, he completed the Tour Divide and raised nearly $20,000 for the Georgia State High School Racing League along the way. So thanks for joining us, Eddie. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that introduction. Yeah, you're welcome. So tell us a little bit about your background. How'd you get started in uh, riding and racing? Wow, that goes back a little ways. I don't know, I got a bike in, I think, 97, just kind of doing things on my own for a while, and then eventually hooked up with the Swamp Club down in uh, the Tampa area. And they introduced me to cross-country racing, which I was okay at. (laughs) Didn't show any signs of greatness there, but uh, I did notice that the longer the race went, the better I did, so... Definitely shifted my focus that way. So when when did that happen? When did you realize that the endurance the stuff was was more your cup of tea? I think I did my first cross country race in two thousand, so it was probably two thousand one, two thousand two before I really had a chance to start exploring those longer races. One of which first twelve hour race I did um, was down in Markham Park, which is probably on its way to being a disaster right now. But I just found myself in the lead after about five hours. I couldn't actually believe that myself. Uh, I ended up falling apart in the, the last hour, but I was totally hooked. It was just, uh, I don't know, it was thrilling to, to be able to push myself and uh, try to find some new limits. Yeah, so you did, um, I think probably the first time I met you was uh, either doing the Fool's Gold race, which uh, you used to, to organize, mm-hmm. or maybe even the Burn 24 so you used to do quite a bit of 24-hour racing as well, right? 24-hour solo stuff? Correct, yeah. The Burn 24-hour was my first uh, solo 24-hour race. Um, and then I took over race directing a year or two later. But uh, so yeah, since that one, I think I've done maybe around, I don't know, low 20s number of 24-hour races solo. So a lot of experience with, with those all over the country. Ouch. I know you also, <laughs> so my faster mustache team that I'm a part of here in Atlanta, we used to do a, a little uh, 24-hour <laughs> urban race, which uh, I believe you won on more than one occasion, right? I only won it once. Okay. Yeah, the second year, yeah, I got into a, a duel with a couple other guys, and they got the better of me. I work on my road tactics. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, those were a lot of fun. A little bit scary, but a lot of fun. Yeah, racing 24 hours through the streets of Atlanta. How many how many miles did you put in in that one it- Close to uh, 400 or yeah, something? Yeah, just shy of 400, like 385, something like that. Woof. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and so, never leaving pretty much downtown Atlanta, so it was, it was such a lot of miles in traffic. Yeah. 
So um, when did you start making the transition from, you know, like the the 24-hour racing, the 12-hour racing into kind of more of like these bikepacking events? Is that just because 24-hour racing is kind of dead. gone away, dead? <laughs> <laughs> it was a culmination of things for sure. Um, yeah, 24-hour racing kind of dying off and the number of races available and the sponsorships available for that style of racing kind of going away, but also a little bit of boredom at the same time. You know, having done 20-some, 20 24-hour races where you're doing multiple laps, um, anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30-some laps of the same thing, it gets a little tedious and a little boring. There's certainly, it's a different style of racing, obviously, and there's support where with the bikepacking, um, that was just kind of starting up, at least here in the southeast, actually just as the FM 24-hour race it ended. So it was a e- fairly easy transition to that, the, the Trans-North Georgia route. Um, became available in 2000, I believe the beginning of 2010. And the event was in September of that year. So that was kind of my first foray into it. And I wouldn't say I was bikepacking at that point. <laughs> As I brought no sleeping gear at all for that one. Not that I didn't need it, but I didn't bring it. Uh, so yeah, it, it took a little while to uh, kind of make that transition. And it wasn't my main focus still for another couple of years. So what kind of, what do you think, what are the unique skills that you possess that make you really successful at riding these long distances? Coming from that 24 hour racing world and learning how to manage myself, you know, physically and emotionally without sleep uh, is definitely a really helpful tool. I think that was probably one of the biggest things to just becoming successful in 24 hour racing is just getting from, you know, about 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. when everything seems to fall apart. Um, and everything in your head says, stop this, this is madness and stupid. And yet put that away and be able to stay on the gas. There's a lot of times, particularly in those, those 24 hour races, but I also found in the, we'll say shorter, uh, you know, kind of weekend long ultra races, I can make really big gains, you know, in that, that four hour period when most people want to sleep and I can push through that. So is that something, you know, is that, that's, that's just something like you learned about yourself while racing, or do you think that's something like an innate skill that you possessed from the beginning? It was definitely learned. I mean, kind of, I guess naturally I'm somewhat of an insomniac anyways. <laughs> so that's kind of helpful, but to be able to take, you know, someone who has a hard time falling asleep to, you know, staying up and racing all night, that was definitely a skill that got honed over the years and sometimes, you know, executed better than other times. (laughs) So it sounds like you're saying the mental part is more difficult than the physical. I mean, a lot of people, I think they just focus on the physical and think there's no way I could do that. How could I ride (laughs) for that long, you know, that fast, but you know, is that even the hard part? No, I think I've got a pretty high pain tolerance at this point. (laughs) So no, it's true. I think the mental heart part is much harder it may be that first 24-hour race, it was, it was a lot more physical. Or even really that first 12-hour race is kind of dealing with all the pain and knowing that, truly knowing that that pain is temporary. And it only tends to get to a certain point while you're still conscious. So you can kind of rely on that, that it's not going to hurt more. <laughs> it's just going to hurt longer. <laughs> and I, it's a really kind of sick way to think about things, but it's kind of where I had to go. But then learning how to... So put away those doubts and just all those things that scream in your head to stop this. Because the next one you do, you know how much it hurt last time. So it doesn't even hurt yet, but mentally you're just like, why Why am I going to go down this path again? 
So just, I don't know, throwing myself against that wall over and over again, I learned how to just shut all that down. So along the lines of the, uh, the mental aspect of racing, do you still get, do you get nervous on these, uh, long distance races? Is absolutely, you, you yeah. have to manage your adrenaline <laughs> at all? A little bit. Cause yeah, you can definitely go too hard. And so pacing is, is important there and not, yeah, not letting that excite and that adrenaline kind of take over you. Like you would be able to do in a shorter race, you know, a couple hour cross country race, you pretty much want to tap into all that adrenaline and just use it all up. But yeah, you do that at the beginning of a, an ultra race, it's, it's not going to be pretty. So yeah, definitely try to manage that. And also where I think it'll be more of a tactical race, you know, kind of use that against my competitors, you know, try to try to push them just a little bit more than they want to be pushed. And, um, you know, use that to break them so that I can ride alone later. <laughs> later suckers. <laughs> yeah. Are you, I mean, do you get comfortable then like at various points during the race or are you constantly thinking about, you know, your position and your competitors and that kind of thing? I mean, it seems like if you are that, that's gotta be exhausting after a few days, right? I do. So, I mean, so most of my experience isn't kind of a weekend long ultra races, which it did tour divide. And that's a whole different beast where like, Stagecoach, Transnorth Georgia, Hurricane are all, you know, I'd say, what's that, like 28 to 50 hours long. Um, so only like one or two days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Straight of riding the whole time. So if I could just not sleep most of the time, that's resulted in a, a good result. So, yeah, I do think about the competition part of it. And it can be exhausting to stay that focused for that long. And that's definitely, you know, I, like I said, I rolled some of that skill over from 24-hour racing where it tends to be really tactical because it's fairly short. I'll put that in quotes, but <laughs> short enough that it's still tactical where when you start pushing out to 48 hours, it's slightly less tactical. There's a lot of other things to manage uh, with nutrition and you know, all the physical things that can happen, but there's still tactics to it. I've been in some fairly close races over some of those ultra races. Let's talk a little more about, about pacing. So how do you determine your pace? Do you go to, into an event and you have a specific mile per hour goal, or are you looking to cover a certain distance each day? Or, you know, how do you, how do you assess that and how do you make those determinations before the race? I'd say I'm better at that now than I was when I first started to, and particularly with ultra races, but I usually have kind of an average mile per hour in my head of what I want to do ahead of time. And then also break that down into various checkpoints, whether it's actually checkpoints in the sense that the race director put those out there or I created them myself. It's usually resupply points. So I'll, you know, have an idea that it's going to take me, you know, three hours to get from, you know, A to B. And then I can base my nutrition, my pacing, because all those two play together, right? Your pace starts falling apart and all of a sudden your nutrition needs change. It took you four hours to do what you thought was three hours. You need more nutrition available for that and or water. So those two kind of play together. And I try to put in the research to be able to execute that, which is maybe why I keep going back to some of the same races because it's... I've already done the homework on those. It's always a little bit harder with a new-to-me race, um, and certainly if it's just a brand-new race altogether and nobody really knows what's out there, um, that poses its own issues. Is that part of the, the fun for you? Yeah, it is. I like doing the, the homework. When I have time to do all the research, <laughs> um, I've got a real job these days where um, when I first started doing these, I had a little more free time to put into the whole research end of it. We'll say, you know, with instance of like Transnorth, Georgia, that I did three times. By the time I did the third one, I knew exactly where I was going to refill my water bottles, how many I'd refill, exactly what was going into those. And I never had to carry any an ounce more water than I needed at any moment in that race. 
And I know that from the get go, which was really gave me a lot of confidence and knowing the one that I could execute that, but just the plan was there. All I had to do is go out and ride it and not try it. I didn't have to make a lot of decisions in that one. All I had to do was just go ride it. Nice. So are there, is there any you know specific training you do for bike packing races that's different from shorter races? I mean, is there anything you really can do to prep for days on end in the saddle? <laughs> and from a purely training aspect, I do a lot of, it's just longer intervals, you know, you know, doing two minute intervals isn't really the kind of efforts that you're ever really want to do in those kind of races. So it's more like doing a lot of 20 minute to one hour efforts and just, I mean, if we want to get into, you know, power numbers and all that, it's really just pushing the FTP power up. Lots of sweet spot training over and over and over again. It's a little tedious, but it's effective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, what about your, your bike setup? Sure, you know, kind of depending on what race you're doing, that's going to vary a little bit, you know, how long it is and, you know, the gear that you take with you. But like, let's say, you know, let's take the Trans North Georgia, for instance, like what's your bike setup? What are you taking with you? The last time I did, well, all three times I did Trans North Georgia, um, I was still racing with Topi Gergon then. So I was on a, I was on a 26 inch hardtail. Say what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was a holdout. <laughs> I've moved on to 27.5 now if we want to argue about wheel size. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, carbon hardtail, try to make my bike um, and my kit as light as possible. So no sleep gear on that one, you know, like a Mylar uh, emergency bivy just in case. And pretty much all I'm carrying is some repair items, um, you know, brake pads, tube or two, multi-tool, and then food. Everything else on there is food. Just And for that one, when I because I try to push straight through on that one, there's, I don't know, it's like a 180-mile section where there's really no resupply. Maybe it's 150 miles. So you pretty much have to carry everything um, nutrition-wise from the start. Um, there's a handful of resupplies points, but they're just most most everything's closed, obviously, in the middle of the night. So it's not really really helpful. And in North Georgia, a lot of things are closed on Sundays. So just limited hours when you start a race on Saturday. So you know most bike packing races, you know there's not a lot of prize money. There's no big sponsors. So you're just kind of racing for bragging rights. You know, but it's also insanely competitive and extremely painful. So. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> Maybe I don't want to know why, because then I wouldn't do it anymore. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't think about that one. Yeah, too much. no, it's I don't know. It's for me a lot of it's just the kind of the sense of adventure, and the thrill of of being able to cover these big distances under my own power, but also it's, you know some mental and emotional you know limit pushing. And it's just a game I've been playing for close to twenty years now of just you know how far can you push it today? Where's your limit? and uh, see if you can step over that. Yeah, it seems like that's kind of the draw, and that's why people are really into bikepacking, because it's one aspect of mountain biking that's still, like, really pure, right? Like, people just do it because they want to do it, and they, they have that, that need for adventure and yeah. pushing themselves. So, yeah. It is. I mean, I mean it just you're out there, and it's, I don't know, you against the world. <laughs> you against the elements. You against whatever mountain you're trying to get over. And it's, yeah, I mean, you kind of learn a lot about the world and yourself in those situations, which is still interesting to me. Yeah, I can definitely, you know, I, I did the the hurricane for the first time this year, and that's the longest I've ever ridden by far. You know, I've, I've always kind of been more of an endurance guy myself, but more in the like 50-ish to, you know. The fun endurance. The fun endurance, <laughs> exactly. You know, six to 12 hour races, you know, I've, I've done a handful of uh, 24 hour team races, but yeah, I think 
you kind of just have to go out and do it, right? Because I, I remember all all my friends coming back from doing the hurricane and talking about how awesome it was, and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> how can, you know, riding 300 and almost 50 miles through central Florida be fun, but... Yeah, I went and did it this year, and it was it was incredible. Definitely yeah, a highlight of the year. You see a whole different side of what Florida is when you get out there in the backcountry like that. It's just it's really pretty, and the terrain changes a lot more than you would expect it to. So you go into it with all these you know kind of preconceived notions, and come out the other side of it with a very different perspective. So, are you from Florida originally? No, I grew up in Connecticut, but I ended up in Florida for five or six years before I moved to Georgia. So back to back to racing. What are Eddie O'Day's keys to success? What are the <laughs> what are the uh, seven habits of highly effective endurance ultra mountain bike racing? I'd say number one is for me all about technique. So I don't do big volumes of training so much anymore, but I focus a lot on being able to ride without basically breaking down soft tissue. And you can ride a cross country race, you're just it's all out. And you want that peak power and you don't think about how you might hurt yourself so much. Where in an ultra race, you just can't do that. So it's all about, you know, kind of preserving your body and good technique you know, being very aware of how you're moving and how you're executing those movements um, really has played into a lot of my success in those ultra races for sure. You know, just being as efficient with my power output as absolutely possible. Then uh, nutrition's always always crucial. Um, it's usually a lot of people's breaking point. So just um, over the years of honing that and uh, knowing what works for me and executing that well. Is that, are you talking mainly nutrition during the race or is some of that what you can do ahead of time? Both of those things. I mean, uh, I don't live like a monk. <laughs> I still enjoy myself, but yeah, I mean, certainly having a good, good diet in general helps. And then, you know, there's kind of pre-race rituals. I, I'm a big believer in uh, beetroot juice leading up to, to ultra races and, and or big training days. This stuff works really well. And then certainly yeah, during the race, I mean, because it's really crucial if you're going to try to push through a night that your nutrition is really spot on because it doesn't take, you know, you know, mess something up for an hour or two and all of a sudden you want to take a nap. And sometimes you have to. But, uh, you know, to, to really execute those those overnighters well, I mean, just having a really good nutrition plan and executing it makes, makes it so much easier. So some of these, these events you're doing where it's overnight, are you essentially carrying all your food with you? Typically, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, because I got to imagine that, you know, when you're riding at that level, you got to have very specific things that you need at very specific times. And, you know, like you said, you know what works for you. Whereas, you know, when I did the hurricane, I was eating like Skittles and <laughs> honey buns from the gas station. Yeah. So, yeah, for that style of racing, I use a lot of infinite nutrition drink mix. So most of my calories comes from, uh, you know, I'm drinking it out of a bottle as I go. And then as I have the opportunity to hit, you know, a gas station store or whatever, and then I'm, you know, I'll get, you know, I like pizza and potato chips and a Coke. And that usually works pretty well, but I try not to do really like gorge myself. I've done that before. And then you just have this, you know, gut bomb going on. It makes you want to take a nap. You feel awful. Even if you're not taking that nap, you feel awful for an hour or two until, you know, you get a chance to digest that. Um, so you get kind of competing resources. If you eat that double cheeseburger, it's hard to go fast. Right? So try to avoid those um, as much as I can. 
and just keep the, the energy level more steady. As I found in Tour Divide, that is not the same way that you can race something like that. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about recovery? So how long, you know, let's say, you know, like the the overnighters, like the Hurricane and the Stagecoach and Trans North Georgia. How long is your recovery time after an event like that? And then, you know, how do you, what are you doing? Uh, how do you spend that time recovering? There's been a lot of variety in that, um, and I think the more Probably the more training I do ahead of time, the less recovery time I have on the back end of it. And then if you go completely without sleep, if I go completely without sleep, the recovery line time is a lot longer if I you know, get like a two or three hour nap. The Just in one year period, I think it was 2013, I did the stagecoach and won that one. That was the first one I did. It took a 20 minute nap, so pretty close to not sleeping for 40 hours. But my recovery was nearly nine weeks. Wow. Yeah. And it was, that was a little scary. <laughs> it starts to get in your head a bit because I had other races. I tried to do Dirty Kanza. I made it about 20 miles into it before I knew it was going to be a horrible day and I wasn't recovered yet. And then later that summer, I had Fool's Gold. But also within a month, I did the Hurricane 300 straight through. And then a month later, I did Stagecoach. So that may have played into it as well. But then all of a sudden, nine weeks later, I'm out on out on my ride, and I was like, God, I feel really good. <laughs> Go home and look at the power files. It was like new peak power numbers, like just nine weeks of nothing. And then all of a sudden, boom, the, it just all turned around, um, which was great because I had Trans-North Georgia coming up. <laughs> in about six <laughs> like or packing seven them weeks. in. <laughs> uh, I did a lot of long ones that year. And then, but after Trans-North Georgia, a week later, I was doing, I did a short track race and won some money. So like the recovery was almost not really needed um, after that one, which is, you know, it's, it's a very big contrast. So it's not always black and white, just how much recovery you're going to need. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that after doing the the hurricane this year. Like I would, for, you know, probably three or four weeks afterwards, I'd go and ride and I just felt like <laughs> I had nothing in my legs. And like sometimes, you know, I'd be posting, you know, pretty good times over segments that I ride regularly, but I just... I didn't, I didn't feel like I had anything in my legs. And then, you know, just one day it was like, it was all, all back and more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you can even get a fooled a little bit where you start, you know, pushing it a little bit. Like, oh, I feel really good. And then all of a sudden it's just like the bottom drops out and you feel absolutely horrid. <laughs> so yeah, you got to be careful with that and listen to your body for sure. So we know we'll, we'll talk in just a second about the, the tour divide, but you know, how many, how many races are you doing now? Typically what's a typical calendar year for you as far as racing goes oh good. three or four races a year now a couple of those obviously are, are longer ones but yeah i just you know i've got a full-time job running uh endurance house atlanta um, and doing bike fittings um, and some coaching as well so i keep myself pretty busy with you know real work versus spending all my time training <laughs> like i used to and having time to go race all the time so yeah so i don't get to do as many events but uh you know pick the interesting ones for me now is anything uh, anything new or different you're going to do next year? Any new events? I'm very interested in the Southern Highlands route that um, yeah. was recently published. So it's a combination of Virginia Mountain Trail, I think they're calling it, uh, Western uh, North Carolina Traverse, Trans-North Georgia, and the um, Skyway Epic. So two of those I've done, two of those I've never seen. But it sounds sounds pretty awesome. 
Yeah, it's something, was it 1,200 miles? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, too, we we're, uh, we have Brett Davidson uh, coming in to do a podcast awesome. in a couple weeks. Um, so, yeah, talking about that and the uh, Eastern Divide route as well that he's working on. So. Yeah, he's he's got a lot of really cool things going on with both of those. Yeah, I don't know about racing the whole Eastern Continental Divide. That sounds absolutely brutal. Um, I don't know what total mileage on that's going to be. It's probably like 3,500 miles and 400,000 feet of climbing. Um, and I'm not, I don't think I'm totally exaggerating on either of those numbers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the East Coast riding is just a lot different, right, than the West Coast where you have, you know, you have these long climbs that you can kind of settle into. Whereas on the East Coast, it's just relentless up and down and up and down and up and down yeah, and up and, and down. you know, 15 to 20% grades is normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the normal parts. Yeah, not, not railroad grades that you find in Colorado. And humidity. Humidity is a big deal on the East Coast, uh, and that, that really changes things for ultra races. All right, so let's talk about the Tour Divide, which you raced this year. It was your first time, right? It is. was, yeah. Yeah, so nearly 2,800-mile uh, route from Banff, Canada, down to the Mexican border at Antelope Wells, uh, New Mexico. Again, ultra race, totally self-supported, and a really impressive mass start. I think we had about 185 people starting uh, in wow. Banff this year. Wow. that's That race has come a long way in not that long. Yeah, for, uh, you know, still a no-entry fee race, somewhat underground. It's Yeah, it's definitely blown up, but I guess that happens when you make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> How, how did you uh, prepare for the Tour Divide, and how is that preparation different from the the shorter ultras? <laughs> um, for the shorter ultras, I've trained a lot more <laughs> than I did for the Tour Divide. I <laughs> uh, just you know, had a lot to do. Like I said, I'd been at Endurance House uh, since we opened, and so obviously heavily involved in, in the day-to-day operation. So a big chunk of being able to do Tour Divide was being able to kind of exit out of that and make sure the store was going to function when I was gone. And that took up a lot, a lot of energy. And then we, uh, with the Georgia interscholastic league you know, kind of put together this fundraising effort, um, which really blew up and was, that's really awesome and appreciated all the support, but it also took a lot of energy as well. So that kind of left me to like putting equipment together and then occasionally riding. <laughs> I think I had 2000 miles in for the year before I started the race, which is for me very low as I would like to be prepared for it. So I didn't have a lot of physical preparation. It was more, you know, trying to look over the route and kind of understand what I was getting into on that front and what equipment I would need for it. So I'd, even if I wasn't, uh, or obviously wasn't in great physical shape, I had the right things with me. So I didn't get myself in trouble. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about your, your setup for the, for the tour divide. Cause obviously, you know, this isn't an overnighter. Um, <laughs> so you're gonna, overnight. you, you're gonna have to bring a little bit more stuff with you, and you're uh, no longer on a 26 inch carbon hardtail, right? No, I'm on a 27.5 uh, Siren titanium uh, hardtail, and for Tour Divide, I put a MV rigid fork on it. Um, there's very little single track, to, and it was just one less thing that would break down. You know, the suspension pork just really isn't totally necessary. If I did it again, I might look at something with a little bit of squish versus totally <laughs> rigid like that. Um, there's a lot of stutter bumps, but, uh, but that was the, the bike. I had some wheel set made up by uh, K-Lite USA based here in Georgia, made up a dyno hub for my front and uh, a nice lightweight 
set of Knox wheels across the board. And uh, yeah, outside of that, um, I didn't do anything crazy with aero bars. I had a, you know, some ergon grips and a couple extra little bullhorn things in the center. So basically trying to keep, still go with the, you know, kind of lightweight mentality, but still need more gear than I typically bring. So I had a, had a small tent, a down quilt, sleeping pad, um, a pillow, air pillow. Um, oh, so fancy. Yeah, <laughs> very, yeah, exactly. I'm a side sleeper, so I didn't think I'd make it through a couple of weeks without having a pillow. So you just got to, because tour divide, you know, sleep is a big deal. You're not going to get a lot of it if you're doing it right, but you want quality sleep. You know, you lose one night of sleep and that, that can mess you up for days out there. Um, I had some new bags made up by uh, the spindle here in Atlanta as well and made a couple custom bags for me. Um, so a frame bag from them and a, and a top two bag. And then uh, some. the rest of it was a Rebel 8 um, saddle bag, another top two bag, handlebar bag. Cool. So how was nutrition on that route? Because obviously, you know, you're not, you're not able to carry all your food with you. So was that a, a struggle for you? Like um, At times, for sure. Uh, and it was definitely a big learning curve. So when I, for the first couple of days, I was still kind of operating the way I would would for any other ultra race. And I wasn't gorging myself too much. And that needed to change because I was day one, I think I did 165 miles, then 125 miles, 175 miles, 100 miles, and then 40 miles. (laughs) So you can kind of see where the trend went. (laughs) So that day of 40 miles, I spent a lot of time eating, trying to kind of rebuild. Some of that was another story of losing my money um, and then getting it back. It cost me a little bit of time, but I just... Mentally and physically, I was feeling really drained. I did, I started off with a lot of my infinite powder and then sent it to myself at post offices throughout the route. Um, I think like 10 of them with the idea that I'd probably be able to pick up about half, which is, I think, how it worked out. But in between, then you've got, you know, whatever you can get at a store. So it's, you know, Gatorade and Coke and, you know, pizzas and Pop Tarts, frozen burritos that you throw in a pack and they'll thaw out, you know, eight hours later. And eight hours. <laughs> it's a good uh, pro tip. Yeah, yeah. It's not my favorite, <laughs> but it, it works. You know, and like the little, pretty much anything that's frozen and pre cooked, you can do that with. And then it took me till about halfway through to really learn like what I can order to go and take with me. And Subway's. Subway sandwiches, they'll last forever. There's so much preservatives in those things. <laughs> no problem carrying that around for, for 12, 18 hours and eating later. But just, you know, realizing that you're at a restaurant and ordering two meals immediately and then be like, hey, can I get like, can you wrap up some grilled cheeses to go or peanut butter and jellies to go or things that'll travel well without spoiling and messing up your stomach later. I also learned to carry a jar of peanut butter at all times <laughs> and just add that to everything, uh, whether I was... You know, out in the wild, putting on pop tarts and Snickers bars, or at a restaurant, and just always get a side of French toast and put peanut butter on it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good right now. I know. So what what was the highlight of the the tour divide for you? Um, so particularly memorable moments. There was some really good days of riding. I mean, day one was just amazing, just to kind of finally be starting it all, and just the views. And that the views part continued on throughout. I think there was really only one day that I could kind of just throw away on that whole ride. But yeah, I mean, just the the amazing views of the Canadian Rockies—they're um, just quite stunning. But yeah, it's hard to pick just one one highlight out of 21 days of of things. But the views um, every time I'd get—you know—you 
it's this contrast of just being mentally and physically spent and over it all. And then you turn a corner and you're just like, oh my God, this view is amazing. This is so cool. I'm so glad I'm out here. You know, and then you struggle on through the next bit. You start getting low again and turn that corner again. And there's, there's another one. So it's certainly, yeah, the views and the wildlife were pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Any, any cool wildlife sightings? I saw badgers in the wild, which I'd never seen before. A couple of golden eagles. Didn't see any grizzlies, um, which I'm not going to complain yeah, too that's much about. Yeah, a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> they were certainly around. Other other racers were telling me of their sightings. I saw one black bear, which was cool, but not you know, anything too thrilling. Several foxes. And riding through a herd of elk is pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. What about, uh, what about low lights? Were there any points where you like, <laughs> F this, I'm done, like, yeah, get absolutely. me out of here? The moment where I, I realized I had lost my money. Um, so pro tip, spread your cash and your credit cards out uh, in your kit. Don't keep it all together, which I did. And at, uh, at some point on Richmond Peak in Montana, uh, it fell out of my bag. If I, was, I don't know if I was getting my camera or bar or whatever. Uh, so there it laid on the ground and about... I don't know, maybe 60 miles later, I got get to Avondo, and uh, there's a lady from the fishing shop there, and she's you know all about getting everybody's picture and posting it up on her, her Facebook page as they come through. And it's really cool how this town gets into it, but I am roll up, and I'm thinking, all right, I need to get batteries at the general store and then go to the restaurant and eat and be on my way. And so I go to get my money and go in the general store, and I can't find it where I usually put it. So I'm like, all right, well, maybe I left it in my jacket because I put put my credit cards and my chapstick in my pocket when I went to sleep at night. So I had my two most important things. <laughs> Not there. And I just start pulling my whole kit apart. It's just a yard sale. Everything's coming out of my uh, bags. And the third time I go through it all, and she's standing there trying to get my picture, and I'm just totally dejected and angry <laughs> at the world. Yeah, so it, that was definitely a low moment for sure. Followed by a high the next morning of... Uh, I got a text from uh, uh, Alex Hawkins, who found my money and said, hey, you know, I'm on my way to Avondo. I'll be there in an hour and a half. And so, yeah, all's well. Everything got fixed. <laughs> That's awesome. One other was uh, past uh, Lima, and I had a really good day going. I'm about 120 miles in. Plan on pushing for a really big night that night and try to do another, like, 40, 50 miles. And... I was kind of following this storm, rode into it a little bit, and then it, it moved on, um, and the road just turned to peanut butter. In a five-mile section, it probably took me an hour and a half, two hours, totally Ugh. flat section. And mud built up so much on my tires that I couldn't even turn the rear wheel over. You couldn't see the bottom bracket anymore. It was just, it's just stuck. Uh, meanwhile, there's riders going right by me and I could not get my head around like, why isn't this happening to you? <laughs> why do you hate me right now, Tour Divide? So I'd have to stop in creeks and like, you know, hand wash my bike at, in a creek, and, which was freezing, and then start going again. Half a mile later, you know, trying to find another creek to do it all over again. So needless to say, I didn't cover big miles that day. It was rather frustrating. I thought my bike would be wrecked at that point. My drivetrain would cease to function there were some protests the next morning out of the, the drivetrain when I got going, but eventually found an RV park where they let me use a hose to clean it up, and it was all back to working again. And then you start rolling into the Tetons, and you're like, oh, pretty views. This is great. Everything's wonderful again. <laughs> so did you have a specific goal for it this year? Because, I mean, like you said, this is uh, you know it's the first time you've done it. It's you know quite a bit different than some of the other, other races that you typically do. So did you have something set? 
before you uh, before you started? Loosely. I mean, I was thinking like 17 days was a possibility. And I know that's very ambitious for that course. You know, the fastest guys are around 14 days. And I really didn't think that was going to be a possibility for, for my first time out. But I ended up at 21. I think if I hadn't lost my money, 20 is certainly a possibility. But it just is really humbling do the kind of the weekend long overnight kind of things. And I've been very successful and can execute those really well. And this was just a totally different beast. You know, just the, the amount of fatigue that's built up a week into it and to have that mental drive of just go, 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 go. I'll skip sleep. I'll, you know, rush through this town constantly. Um, it just wears on you for sure. It's hard to be in that, you know, adrenaline filled state for, for that long. <laughs> <laughs> The better part of a month. Yeah, exactly. So even towards the end, although I mean, all the way through, I kept trying to figure out where I could try to make up some more time and put a little bit more effort in, ride a little bit later into the night and cover some more ground. But every day afterwards, I'd have, you know, if I could execute that the next day, it'd be a total struggle. And not always just because of the physical. It's just, you know, that route just keeps throwing things at you like headwinds. I remember pushing out of Abiquiu and over the mountain range there down into Cuba and um, I slept on that, that ridge line through the night and then rode into Cuba, probably got there around noon. And it's pan flat road section for 120 miles to Grants. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, I can knock this out tonight. I'll get a hotel in Grants and a shower and that'll be awesome. And the first, it took me three hours to do the first 25 miles. Oh, man which was mostly, you know, it was like a 1% downhill grade, but it was a 23-mile-an-hour headwind. <sighs> and I just had to stop at a gas station. I just took a nap in front of a gas station for like 40 minutes <laughs> and continued to plug on to this headwind. And just I think I made it about halfway through that night before I had to sleep on the side of the road. And you just, you know, you have to, I don't know, you're constantly adjusting your expectations out there. Yeah, headwinds are, headwinds are cruel. Yeah, for sure. Probably nothing more Mentally, demoralizing. Yeah, I mean, like climbing a mountain versus riding into a headwind is just totally different mentality. You know, you feel like you're you're conquering something as you because there's an end to that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know when the headwind's going to end. So, are you uh, are you one and done on the Tour Divide, or are we gonna you gonna take it on again? What do you oh, think? I hope not. I hope not. Now that I know what I'm doing, I'd love to go back and give it <laughs> another try. But it's going to be a at least a couple of years before I go back. I mean, the financial hit was was certainly uh, one that's going to take me a little while to go over, get over. And it was basically the week before the race, I didn't really work. And then I got three weeks of the race itself, which was, you know, several days longer than I planned. And then the recovery period, it was about three weeks before I could really function back at work and you know, get back to making some money. Um, so it was a lot of time off and I didn't, you know, that's obviously not all paid vacation there. Um, so yeah, that financial hit was a little bit tough, but, uh, yeah, I definitely want to go back. I mean, it's such a cool adventure and meet really cool people, like-minded people who are out, you know, trying to do the same things and just, uh, the scenery. I'd go back for the scenery alone. Yeah. I did a, uh, uh, bike packing. It was a semi supported bike packing ride. So nothing along these lines, but yeah, I did it from, uh, from steamboat or no, from Fort Collins to steamboat Springs. And yeah, just the, the views out there are incredible. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine having three weeks of that is, uh, gotta be pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, hopefully next time it's not three weeks, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it is, I'll still enjoy it. 
Cool. So as we said in the intro, as part of your your tour divide race, uh, you raise money for the Georgia NICA chapter, which is the uh, National Interscholastic Cycling Association. And we actually talked to Kenny Griffin. Yeah, we talked to him on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. So you know, how, how did you get involved and, and, you know, how'd you come up with the idea and, and what does the, the Georgia League mean to you? I got involved. I was initially part of kind of a almost brand ambassador kind of thing for NICA on the national level to, just to help kind of spread the word about NICA and what they were doing. And then I had met Dan Brooks, who's now chairman of the board, previous Georgia League director. Um, so I got talking with him one day and he was at a point in his life where he was looking for something interesting, cycling related, positive impact on the world kind of thing. And I was like, Hey, I'd heard about this, you know, outfit called NICA. Let's start up a league here in Georgia. And that happened. We were able to put that together, a you know, successful application for NICA and execute the first, uh, race season with, with Kenny and many other people's help. Had about 100 kids that first year. Uh, now, fast forward to four years later, there'll be about 750, 800 kids in the league this year. First race coming up on this Sunday, September 10th. That's awesome. So you kind of mentioned uh, your your job a little bit. Um, you know, in, in addition to the the racing and uh, you know the bike fitting and former race promoting, you're now at the Endurance House. So what it, what is the Endurance House and uh, what do you do there? Endurance House is a multi-sport store in Alpharetta, Georgia. If you're into triathlon, we got everything you need. But if you're into any one facet, individual part of that, um, that's cool too. Got everything from you know road to tri to hybrid and mountain bikes. It's running and walking shoes, uh, nutrition, recovery products, swim stuff like wetsuits and um, goggles, swimsuits and that kind of stuff. And then all the services. It's a full-service bike shop, full-time mechanic. And then the bike fitting, wheel rentals, wetsuit rentals. And we just got a lot going on. There's coaching programs for you know, multi-sport and um, cycling. We're running specific stuff. So just just a lot of things happening with that story, which is fun. Yeah, you mentioned you do coaching. Do you do that through the store or do you do that kind of on the side? And uh, We do that, well, yeah, through the store. Yeah. So I write, do write training plans, kind of group training plans to share with various groups for, for individual events. Um, I also do one-on-one coaching as well. Yeah. So while you were on the Tour Divide, you rode near, I guess, Salida, Colorado, which is where our editor Greg lives. And uh, you had a chance to talk to him while on the road, right? I did, yeah. Greg and I go back a little ways. He used to do social media for me on Fool's Gold. So, yeah, it was kind of cool to see a familiar face out on the on the trail. Rode along with him for, I don't know, about maybe an hour, I guess. He tried to record some of that, but it was one of those crazy headwind days, so I don't think too much of that came out, but uh, he put together what he could out of that. Yeah, I think he kind of uh, I think he kind of thought maybe you were going to stop. But he was like, yeah, we didn't really work out how the or logistics. Or slow down. He said, he said he was having a hard time just keeping up with you. We didn't really work out the logistics of it, but no, I was not stopping or slowing down. That's yeah, an interview on the go. So if you want to read that, you can check that out on singletracks.com along with reports from events like the hurricane and uh and other things and the steamboat ramble that i did that i referred to earlier but yeah i want to thank eddie o'day for joining us here at the single track studios and uh if you like the podcast uh go over to google play or itunes wherever you get your podcast from and you know give us five stars that's all we got for you this week we'll talk to you next time later